Morning, team. Glad you're here. Welcome to church. It's good to see all of you, every single one of you. Um, so I want to start today um, by weighing in personally um, on a divisive issue in our culture. Uh, no doubt an issue that's caused conflict in homes. I know it has in mine. Um, and normally I hold my cards pretty close to the chest, uh, but I've had some heated debates lately and I want everyone to know where I stand. Uh, for a long time I was kind of on the other side and, and it seemed appropriate to share this today. Obviously you know what I'm talking about. Whether or not you have to wait until after Thanksgiving to listen to Christmas music. <laughs> and uh, for a long time my theology has been post-Thanksgiving. And I just want to say that in light of all the things happening in our culture, I'm now pre-Thanksgiving. So, so officially, if you don't like me, unsubscribe. Just bust out the Frank Sinatra and the Charlie Brown Christmas music is a green light. Okay, just want to, amen, thank you. Um, welcome, just, was that funny? It was funny. Welcome. We're gonna, um, we're gonna continue walking through the book of Acts today. Um, and if you're new, I want to, as much as I'd like to catch you up, we've been going through the book of Acts since June. Um, and so it would be just too much to try to catch you up on. But I, let me just give you some, some quick context um, as to where we are in the book of Acts. So just from a totally outsider perspective, Acts is the history of the church. It's the history of the birth of the church. Um, and it takes place after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, first century through the Roman Empire, which spreads uh, to modern day Europe, Asia, and Africa. Basically anywhere the Mediterranean Sea hits land was the Roman Empire. And this uh, Acts is chronicling the uh, explosive expansion of Christianity under uh, Roman rule. And what we see, if you look at the book of Acts, um, does not look like a new religion at all, actually. There's no priests, there's no ceremonial structures, there's no hierarchy of power, there's no big buildings, the things that we associate with religion, but rather, if you look at the book of Acts and, and read it, it looks more like a new humanity. It looks more like humanity 2.0. Humanity with a new power, a new resource, the Holy Spirit. Humanity in a new community, literally built on the work and person of Jesus, right? So this new community would stand in such stark contrast with the culture around it, right? They loved others deeply. They took care of the poor. They even revisioned domestic life for the first century person, right? It stood in such contrast with the culture around it uh, that for various reasons, this community would become a target of fierce opposition and persecution. And that's what we've been seeing, right? New communities sprouting up, new life, salvation, redemption, and then for whatever reason, for various reasons, from different perspectives, different groups of people don't like the contrast that they see for whatever reason in this new community and begin to oppose it, to attack it, to persecute it, right? Why? I mean, all they're doing is loving people and being nice to their neighbor and telling their men to quit treating their women like property, right? But rather they're co-heirs of the kingdom, right? They're telling people to abstain from sexual promiscuity. What's wrong with that? You'd think that's fine. Let them do their deal. But even today, y'all, so like why were they getting all this persecution? Even today, people have a difficulty <laughs> coexisting with others who have a different vision of life. No, exactly, right? How could you say that, Chris? Right, a different vision of the good life. So we're all answering, whether we know it or not, what is the good life? 
What do I need to have to be happy? What should I pursue in order to secure my joy and happiness in this life? All of us are answering that question, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not. You're answering that question right now. You maybe have some idea that coming to church in some way contributes to a sense of happiness and joy in your life. Do you not? You have some idea that the house, the kind of house you've purchased will contribute to the kind of joy you you have in your life, the kind of happiness. We're all pursuing a vision of life. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to have joy? And when different visions oppose one another, we get conflict, right? So today, just like 2,000 years ago, we seem to perceive differences, different visions, whatever they may be, as a threat. And the primary contrast in this new community, this new culture that's exploding in first century Rome, Roman Empire was their idea of who God was and what God had done, okay? Because the primary content, as you are seeing, of this new community revolves around the person and work of Jesus. It's literally built on him. It's what bound them together. It was this idea that God himself had come to men and that God himself had bore the weight of the sin of all men and had defeated sin and rose to life again. And that was so startling to them that they reoriented the entirety of their life. For us, what seems like passe Christianity was for them absolutely revolutionary. God, the creator God, came to us, died for us, and by his grace, we are now transformed and made new, redeemed, right? It revolutionized their life. This idea of being built on Jesus, this community being built on Jesus, um, insulted the Jews, all right? Because, so why, I'm answering this question, why was there persecution? Why were people violently against Christians at the birth of the church? Well, the Jews had insulted their sense of self-righteousness. See, for the Jews, they had spent, especially the religious Jews, had spent their entire life building a righteousness before the Lord by doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. And the Jews had rightfully earned, right, in their minds, a place in the presence of God. And so when the message of the Christian church comes out, righteousness is achieved now through Jesus, through what he did, no longer through the law. Of course, they're insulted. Who do you think you are, right? I've built my whole life obeying the rules And because I've obeyed the rules, God now receives me. And the Christian message was, no, God receives you now because of the righteousness of Jesus. And we live our life out of a thankful gratitude of that great truth. For them, it was an insult, all right? And then it confused the pagans, the Gentiles, the the secular, the Romans. It confused them as just nonsense, right? You're babbling, at one point it says in the book of Acts, right? 1 Corinthians 1, 22 says this, Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You see, the content of this community was nothing other than Christ crucified. And if we ever find ourselves straying from the flag of Christ crucified in the Christian church, we have deviated from biblical Christianity. Thank you. If the flag of your Christian community, wherever you might find yourself, begins to be anything other than Jesus, then you are getting into a side addy, and honestly, you're getting off of biblical Christianity. Our flag is not politics. Okay? 
Our flag is even not social justice. Is social justice great? Absolutely, man. Should we pursue and defend the rights of orphans and widows? Absolutely. Read the Bible, but that's not our flag. Do we talk about righteous living? Yeah, duh. Yeah, we talk about that. Yeah, you should live right. You should do right by all. You should live at peace with all men. Is that our flag? No, it's not our flag. Our flag is Christ crucified. So everywhere this pops up, this new community, preaching Jesus, not only are they preaching, not only are they proclaiming, they are demonstrating. The healing power of Jesus was coming to the Roman Empire in various places through the apostles and the Christians themselves, right? So salvation, healings, restoration, redemption, popping up all over the place like a wildfire. You know what also was popping up all over the place like a wildfire? Persecution, suffering, and adversity. So much so that Paul would tell the Christians, it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14. And so, of course, we have spent so much time talking together as Christians about our idea of suffering, haven't we? Because for so many Christians, we have a theology for blessing, but we don't have a theology for suffering. And Acts helps us, doesn't it? So, but the majority of the persecution in the book of Acts up to this point has been coming from religious people. Now, what we think today, when we think of culture wars and Christians fighting against others, we probably think of Christians fighting against non-Christians, secular people, right? But up until this point, it has not been secular persecution to the church. It's been the, the people of God who are persecuting the work of God, the church. So you got to wrestle with that for a while and then sit with the whole Jesus. The only, word, the only harsh words he had was for the people of God. Not the secular group, okay? So anyway, there's a whole lot there we could talk about. Let's, we got to keep going because we're not going to get done. Um, it was the people of God who had assumed they were the rightful owners who had God cornered. They had the market on God, right? And the text will tell us that it is out of jealousy, or it was out of jealousy, that they became the religious, the Jews became the equivalent, as, as Duck put it last week, of first century Karens, Right? They were following the apostles around from town to town, demanding to speak to management. And that's really an accurate picture. It's really an accurate picture. They were, over and over again, trying to pit the Romans against the Christians. So, very much an accurate picture, okay? Um, Now, the further Paul gets from Jerusalem in the book of Acts, um, the more opposition begins to shift to come not from the religious, but become from the Romans as well, okay? And that's what we're gonna see for very, very different reasons, all right? But that's what we're gonna see today. So, um, in Acts, the Jews hate Christians out of religious jealousy. The Gentiles hate Christians most often out of commercial disruption, believe it or not. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, when the light of God, the kingdom of God, shines on any people, okay, any industry built on darkness shrivels up and dies. And that's what we will see today in Ephesus. Spiritual darkness is shaken, just like we saw in Acts 17 when the foundations of the prison were shaken, when Paul and Silas worshiped. The other thing that should be said before we jump into this text today is from this point on, the book of Acts jumps in a crazy high gear, okay? 
things start going very fast, and you're going to feel that, right? It's going to feel like drinking from a fire hydrant or whatever today a little bit. Um, the trips of Paul and his crew smush together as, as you're reading the book of Acts, and it's like Luke, the author of Acts, is just giving you like an itinerary of where they were going, right? He's like, he went here, he went there, he went there, okay? And then, so besides the fact that the, the text itself speeds up throughout the rest of <laughs> this will blow your mind, we have two weeks, two more Sundays until we begin Advent. Stop, right? Stop. Yeah, that'll blow your... So praise his name. The dumpster fire of 2020 is almost over, right? We're, we're going to get over it. But, but that means we have three weeks for 10 chapters, okay? So we got to speed it up. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into Acts 18, which I haven't set up to this point. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I ask that you would give us um, patience in our hearts, Lord. Patience to sit with texts, um, to let them wash over us, Lord, to engage with the text, Lord, in such a way um, that we leave here changed, formed by your word. Father, we give preference to your word. So no matter what is said here today, Father, I pray that your word would do as it does, which goes forth from you and waters what you intend it to water. It grows what you intend it to grow, and it does not come back to you void. So we trust you now, God, as we open the Bible, as we read, as we sit together. Come, Holy Spirit, be glorified in this place. Amen. So in chapter 18 alone, Paul goes from Athens to Corinth, from Corinth through Ephesus, down to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, (laughs) through the towns that kicked him out earlier, encouraging disciples, and then back to Ephesus in 19. Okay, so up until this point, all that's just chapter 18. Up until this point, we'd spend a whole day on one town because Luke gave us those details. Well, he stops giving us the details. In fact, in Jerusalem, it just says he greeted the church <laughs> hey, you know, and, and moves on to Antioch. Um, but we find out that Paul spends a year and a half just in Corinth. Okay, It's one of the longest stays of all of his missionary travels. So let me tell you what happens in Corinth, and then we'll move to Ephesus, and then we can chat about what it all says. So first thing that happens in Corinth, and so I'm giving you a bit of an overview. I will read part of the text, but we just can't read it all because we don't have time. This is what happens in Corinth with Paul. Uh, first, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. This is a husband and wife a duo, Jews who share Paul's trade, uh, which was tent making. And so it makes business sense to team up with these two, and Paul moonlights as a preacher of Jesus. He makes tents with, during the day with Priscilla and Aquila, and then every weekend is in the uh, synagogue preaching Jesus. It says he's reasoning and persuading. It describes him as, I love this, occupied with the word. He is trying to convince both Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Christ. That's what it says in the text, right? Which means, Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. Side note for you on the front row. Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, Christ is a title that others attributed to him. And what it meant was, we think he's the Messiah, okay? So when Paul is trying to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, it means he's trying to say, he's the one. He's the one all the prophecies in the Old Testament were about. He's the, the savior foretold of since the beginning, right? Even all the way back to Genesis, God's been telling us about this person and it's him. And that's what he's trying to persuade them of. The Jews and the Gentiles. So he's putting all of his energy into this, right? Jesus is the guy. And in verse six, predictably in 18, the Jews get fed up with him 
And Paul says, all right, fine, I'm out, I'll leave. Doesn't go back to the synagogue. And he says he shakes the dust off of his feet, which is the symbol of like, all right, you're gonna you know, make your bed, now you lay in it, I'm out. And <laughs> this is great about Paul. He literally walks across the street and sets up camp with a Gentile who lived across the street from the synagogue and opens a church over there. So, so Paul's like, fine. I'm just going to walk across the street. So every week, the Jews would watch as crowds and crowds came to this dude's house right across the street from the synagogue, right? Uh, and eight, it says, many Corinthians heard about it and came to faith and were baptized. I mean, Paul was intense, man. I mean, if you've ever heard of an in-your-face move, I mean, that was the move right there. You don't want me? Fine, I'm going to walk across the street, and you're going to have to see the droves and droves of people that are coming to my crew, right? So talk about mad. The Jews are in ra- Of course they're jealous, I mean, dude is just doing moves like this, right? Even the Jews in Corinth, even to add insults to injury, right? They even had high-profile Jews defect. <laughs> so it says that even the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, believes. So talk about mad. Um, it's a miracle that Paul stayed here so long because I don't know why these dudes didn't just like drag him out and beat him, right? But undoubtedly, one of the reasons he does is because in verse nine, it says the Lord speaks to Paul in a dream, in a night vision. And the Lord says this to Paul. He says, don't be afraid, dude. Don't be afraid. Speak on. Don't be silent because I'm with you. And the Lord tells him through a vision, no one's going to lay a finger on you because I have many people in this city. So now I find this very encouraging to me. Um, Paul, to me, just as a dude who reads the Bible, seems to be this kind of superhero with his cape flapping in the wind, right? He's like, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? I mean, he's just like intense superhero. And sometimes you read him and you're just like, bro's unstoppable. I don't relate to that, you know, but even he needed encouragement to not be afraid. Doesn't that comfort you? I mean, Bro wrote eight, 13 books of the New Testament, and even he needed the Lord to come alongside him and say, don't give up, man. Push on, press on, right? I find comfort in my own need to be encouraged in this passage. So while Paul gets a much needed break from beatings in Corinth, and he does, he does not get a free pass. In 12, it says the Jews make a concerted, united attack on Paul, and for obvious reasons, they're enraged out of their mind, right? It'd be like if the elders came to me and were like, Chris, you're preaching trash, get out of here. And I was like, I'm gonna start a church across the street, you know, and you guys just watch, you know, it'd be crazy. They're enraged, right? So they make a concerted effort. In fact, the, the, the language there, and the YLT, it says they rushed him, <laughs> like a blitz, like playing football, right? And so um, they led Paul to the Roman authorities, the um, official tribunal. In other words, they take Paul to Roman court. That's what happens, okay? To the guy who is over all of Achaia, which is the region that they are in, right? And his name was Gallio. Now, this is an interesting tidbit about Gallio. Um, this man, so we're in like, I don't know, we're thinking like 10 or something like that, or tw- somewhere around 12 or 11 um, in Acts 18. Interesting tidbit about Gallio. Um, he, the mention of his name, has been instrumental in helping establish an accurate historical timeline for the life of Paul. Check this out. 1905, Uh, A French excavation team uncovered an inscription a couple miles north of Corinth known as the Delphi Inscription. This is in 1905, which told them all about Gallio. 
And apparently, he's the younger brother of the famous philosopher Seneca, who himself was the tutor um, of the emperor Nero. And it tells us that Gallio was a proconsul of Achaia in 51 and 52 AD and had to abandon his post due to ill health. And so, because he was at his post such a short time, it has what N.T. Wright uh, said became the peg on which most of the historical chronologically of Paul can be hung, if that makes sense. So, why do I bring that up? If you think the Bible is a fairy tale that some white guys wrote, okay? There's a whole lot of historians, secular and religious, who would correct you. In fact, uh, we have things like this, archeological finds like this in 1905, and a vast variety of other historical reasons have provided what Daniel Wallace calls an embarrassment of riches when it comes to verifying the historical validity of the Bible. So they bring Paul to Gallio. Uh, in 13, it says, well, no, it doesn't say this, but their inner Karens come out, right? And, he's, and they say he's teaching people to wor worship God in illegal ways. And so here they are. You go, are we tracking? We're in the court. Okay, Gallio, we got the Jews, <laughs> the Karens. We got Paul. And they say he's teaching people to worship God in illegal ways, okay? And as Paul is clearing his throat, right, um, Gallio says this, look here. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, oh Jews, do you hear the condescension? Oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about, your, about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now this is crazy what happens next, right? This is just absurdly violent, okay? Right in front of the tribunal, a mob beats Sosthenes. Now, who's this guy? We don't even know this guy. Sosthenes is a ruler of the synagogue and presumably the guy who was leading the charge against Paul. So it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, so you got to read the text closely. Gallio sees this and does nothing. And it's not totally clear why this happens. We don't know. A crowd obviously gathered, N.T. Wright points out, quite possibly a crowd who were not particularly, a crowd, Romans, okay? A crowd who were not particularly in favor of either the Jewish community or the Christian community or both, or they were just annoyed at the whole thing and they want someone to beat. So they grab Sosthenes and beat him in the street and the authorities do nothing. Now, remember, Roman citizens could not be beat without trial, but this guy's a Jew, presumably, right? And the cultural assumption is that all Jews are non-citizens and therefore they had zero rights. And so they beat Sosthenes right in front of the tribunal. So this action that happens in the book of Acts answers at least for now, a really important question that the early Christians and Paul himself was wrestling with the answer of, right? Which is, uh, well, let me give you some context first before I tell you the question. Um, the Jewish religious powers had been trying to do with the Christians what they had done with Jesus, okay, right? Which is, get Rome to do their dirty work, Right? Okay, they had Rome kill Jesus. They were trying to give Rome a reason to kill um, the Christians to smash them out. So the question at hand was, is it illegal under Roman law to be a Christian? And for now, this event, at least for now, answers the question. No, it's not illegal. Rome is not going to impose its authority to smash out Christians, at least in Corinth, and at least for the moment. Is that, is that, does that make sense? So it's a very important moment in the book of Acts. And in fact, uh, many theologians uh, have said that Luke wrote the book of Acts to prove that the Christians were not a political uprising group and therefore 
was not going to overthrow a government. And so that some, some people would point at this as to say, see, Luke was trying to say Christians aren't uh, a rebellious group that's going to overthrow your government. So at least for now, Rome decides we don't have to stamp out the Christians, not, le- not at least yet. And then we get this new character. So we're going through a lot, right? It's a lot. I told you. It's a lot. It just goes fast. We get this new character who hops on the stage, and as quickly as he hops on, he hops off, and his name is Apollos. And I'm not going to tell you much about Apollos other than the fact that dude is gifted. I mean, he's an eloquent, charismatic dude, becomes a pillar in the Christian church, but going to be a powerful influence. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, his influence seems on par with Paul's. And then you have these other 12 disciples in the beginning of 19 who have never even heard of the Holy Spirit, and they get baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? And both of these events, I think, are pointing to the fact that the road to Christian discipleship will include always continued learning and continued filling that will only happen if we have the humility and honesty to receive um, teaching and blessing from others. And if you are intrigued uh, by the idea of a disciple of sorts, and yet, but not yet being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, I would encourage you to go listen to the sermon from September 6th titled Kingdom of Power in which we um, talk about that at great length, okay? But we just don't have time today. So now, 19, there it is, whole chapter, here we go. 19, Paul is in Ephesus, okay? And yes, that's where Ephesians is written to let me tell you about Ephesus. This is where it gets kind of, this is where it gets cool. I'm going to try to slow down just a little bit. Um, Ephesus is a hub of new age, pseudoscience, pagan, paranormal, religious superstition. It's a hub for it, okay? So much so that according to the Tyndale uh, commentary, scrolls that contained pagan magic spells were called Ephesian letters, okay? So, so think like Sedona, Arizona times 10, okay? And then population times 20, to about 250,000 people in Ephesus, which at the time uh, put it among the highest populated cities in the entire Roman Empire. So Paul's swinging for the fences, y'all, right? He's going to the largest cities um, of the Roman Empire. Uh, Ephesus also contained uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the Temple of Artemis. Look it up. It's very cool. So I'm gonna tell you three things about uh, what happens in Ephesus and how they are all indicative of the town itself and then try to tie it together. The first two things um, uh, really display the level of paranormal, superstitious activity that happens in the city. So in 11, it says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So much so, 12 says, that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. This is very interesting, isn't it? The only other place in scripture that we get close to the idea of sacred objects would be in Acts 5.15 where it says they brought Peter, they brought people in the streets so that Peter's shadow might follow, fall on them, okay? So there's that instance. That's not an object, though. The only other time in Scripture we get anything close to this. Is everyone, am I talking? Are we communicating here? Are we making sense? Okay, some, some glazed eyes. I don't know. Oh, oh, that was Acts 5.15. Yeah, Acts 5.15. That was Luke. That was Peter with the shadow. And then the other one is um, Matthew 9, which is where a woman touches the hem of Jesus's garment and is healed by it. Okay. So, but, however, No mention of that garment than possessing magical powers or being passed around, right? Now, the Roman Catholics took stuff like this and ran with it, okay? Um, But in the Bible, you don't see 
the idea of holy relics that possess some inherent power as the norm, okay? Uh, Thus, I'm here today preaching the Bible instead of on a journey to find the Holy Grail, right? Tying like coconuts to swallows and trying to figure out what witches are made of. Monty Python joke, if you don't get it, don't worry about it. All right, so, so yeah, exactly. Yet here... It seems God is meeting. This is crazy. Let's, let's stay with it because this is very interesting to me. Here, God is meeting these superstitious people within their own superstitious framework. Isn't that interesting? God is meeting them and healing them from sickness and evil oppression through handkerchiefs and aprons. Now, that's not a biblical theology that we hang our hats on, is it? And yet God is here doing things that he kind of doesn't normally do to seek and save the lost because he's God and he can do whatever he wants to do, even if it confounds our theology. So the question isn't how do we systemize this or fit this in, right? Um, It reminds me that God will reveal himself to the hearts of men in whatever way he sees fit. And perhaps the cry of our heart should not be to demand that God works within frameworks that we find sensible, but simply that God reveal himself to us however he sees fit, right? So we can imagine the controversy and the buzz swelling in the city around this guy, Paul. It's a very paranormal, supernatural city. And here this dude comes, and I mean, he's like putting to shame all the other magicians, right? All the other guys that claim they can do stuff like this, and this bro's handkerchief is doing it. And so, of course, massive hubbub and buzz in the city is going, right? This, the city that claimed great spiritual power, and yet is seeing and experiencing something that is throwing every other claim in question. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the second thing, so that's the first thing that is indicative of the paranormal, superstitious uh, environment that Ephesus was. The second thing, and maybe the stranger thing, if you can believe it, uh, happens, is seven brothers. They are itinerant Jewish exorcists, all right? They claim some sort of spiritual connection and probably fell in the category of soothsayers or magicians, right? They were Jewish, but they were not in the mainstream Jewish structures. Their dad was. Their dad was a priest, and they're called the sons of Sceva, okay? So they had the sons of Sceva, these traveling magicians, went around Ephesus exercising people. They had a bag of tricks, and they realize that Jesus is seeing great effects in the city, in the name of Jesus. And so they throw Jesus into their bag of tricks. And they think, well, if all these evil spirits are fleeing at the name of Jesus, let's throw him in our bag of tricks and see if it works, right? And it becomes clear that you don't use Jesus as a tool in your bag of tricks, okay? So they are going around attempting to uh, cast out evil spirits, help people, heal people, saying this, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul Preaches And it says in 15, but one time they're trying to do this, and it says this. This is 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them. Yeah, right, which is already like. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This, this, is, a, this is an oh crap moment for these guys, right? And... In 16, it gets even better. You guys ever read the Bible? Oh my gosh, right? 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, 
and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Naked. Naked. That's how you say it, guys. Naked. Okay? They flee out of the house naked and wounded. So, I mean, what can be said of these insanity? Well, Jesus isn't your tool, man. Jesus isn't your tool. Don't, you don't use Jesus for your purpose. He uses you for his, right? When you try to use Jesus like you would a magic spell, it's just embarrassing, <laughs> right? Jesus is a person we must submit to, not an incantation we employ. The kingdom of God is established in the hearts of those who would surrender to him, not use him like a tool, and it becomes abundantly clear in this passage. Listen, if Jesus, if Jesus is the way, you just plan on getting into heaven after you die, like, right, there's two options, right? And obviously, there's heaven and the other place, right? You don't want to go to the other place. And if Jesus is the hoop that you have to jump through so you don't go to the other place, right, then you are using him like a tool you employ, not a person you surrender to, right? You've missed the entire reason for becoming a Christian. We don't submit to Christ or become Christians so that we get to heaven after we die. We become Christians because we get God. That's what we get, team. We get God. We get him here and now. We get restored communion with the creator of the universe. That's what you get when you become a Christian. And so many Christians have used Jesus as a tool to get whatever it is they think is most valuable, whether that be popularity, right? Or some idea of spiritual authority over others, or even community. What a great, beautiful byproduct of following Jesus, but it's not the goal. We don't use Jesus just to get friends, y'all. We become a Christian because we get God. He's the reward. And if that seems to you a pithy reward, then you have not met the man. Jesus, show yourself to us, Lord, right? So many of us have an idea of Jesus that's more like a Polaroid and less like a person. Yeah. All other benefits we get, y'all, are secondary. And are they good? Oh, amen, yes, they're good. But God is the reward of being a Christian, not all the other things we may enjoy. So sons of Sceva try to lay claim to power, the power of Jesus, without submitting to the authority of Jesus, without submitting to a relationship with Jesus, and it does not end well with them. 17 says this, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the entire city begins to feel the impact of God's liberating kingdom, right? New life, salvation, oppressive darkness is vanquished. People are being set free. And you don't have to do a modern day equivalent to know that 50,000 pieces of silver is an insane amount of wealth, right? And as the word, it says the word increased and prevailed mightily in Ephesus. The word increased. And my prayer for this church, man, my prayer for my heart is yes and amen, please and thank you, Lord. Let your word increase and prevail mightily, right? 
they burn all these books. So here's the third thing that happens, and I'm going to try to tie it all together at the end. Okay, and I'm just going to let Luke tell this portion of the story, and we are doing phenomenal on time. Here we go. Um, Acts 19, verses 23. I'm going to let Luke tell the story and, and, and uh, put a little comments here and there in, in the rest, 23 to 41. Here we go. Um, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was what had become known as the Christian community. They called it the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and brought no little business to the craftsmen. So no little disturbance because he brought no little business. So I don't know why they say it so weirdly, right? We just say like a lot, right? A lot. A big disturbance, a lot of money. Okay. It's a whole industry, 25. So these, these are the, the silversmiths, the craftsmen that build idols. He brought them all together um, with the workmen of similar trade and saying, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. That word is prosperity. It made these boys rich beyond their wildest dreams. This is most likely a wealthy, uh, influential businessman leading the charge against Paul, right? 26, and you see here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. How dare Paul suggest something as rational as that? 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, so you can imagine this guy standing under the shadow of this great, magnificent, brilliant, secular pagan temple, right? This, this temple just loomed over the landscape of Ephesus. It was massive, right? And he's saying, that'll be counted as nothing. And you could say, okay, bro, you know, you're a little hyperbole, you know, just stirred the crowd. And yet, today, if I took a poll and asked people, what comes to mind when you think of Ephesus I have a feeling most people would say Ephesians and not the temple of Artemis. So, 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, whole city. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Arist Aristarchus, got it, Macedonians who were Paul's companions. So Paul was like, I don't know what he was doing, right? But they didn't get him, they got his buddies. And it's total chaos. So the drama goes to the theater, get it? Okay. Probably, now, probably the theater, think of Roman Greco, right? So you remember the theaters back then, right? Massive structures, the staggered seating, right? And they drag these men into the theater that could probably have seated tens of thousands, right? And you know everyone's expecting blood, okay? 30, but when Paul heard, um, hold on, let me say this. When Paul heard what was happening, he said, let me go in there. So like maybe 50,000, let's just say, we don't know how many people are in this theater. They said a lot back in the day, right? Like more than we would think. This massive theater of angry craftsmen and Romans and there's confusion and they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And everyone knows there's gonna be blood, y'all. This was a gladiator season, okay? Like entertainment was, was blood. So everyone knows there's gonna be blood. And Paul's like, let me go in there. 
And his friends are like, are you crazy? No. So his friends are literally holding Paul back because he wants to get in there and preach the gospel. Does this not blow your mind? I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, all right, let's just see how it pans out. Let's lay low. Let's just lay low. Gaius, we're praying for you. Man, we hope you make it, you know? And it says, the disciples would not let Paul in. Even some of the Asiarchs, other friends of his, sent saying, urging him, don't go into the theater, Paul. Don't go in, right? So clearly they all know there's gonna be blood. And his friends say, Paul, you can't, you can't do it. And Paul's like, let me in there. Jesus can save them. Let me preach the gospel, right? All of, those, all of them souls in there can be saved. I have a massive audience. Let me preach, right? And, and we just, let's just sit with this just for a second before we move on, okay? Paul, this man, clearly counts his life as nothing if only the gospel is preached. If only all of those people can hear the salvation and forgiveness of Jesus, he says, I'll, I'll die for it, right? And we're seeing now in the life of Paul and in the life of the early disciples, what happens in a heart when the spirit of God and the message of God totally saturate a life, right? I'll tell you what happens. Your perspective of your very life becomes reflected in this quote by John Wimber, I am change in God's pocket. He can spin me however he wants. That's what happens when the salvation of Jesus, when the work of Jesus himself begins to dominate the landscape of your life, you perceive your very existence differently. It changes everything. Just to put it into context, right? Not only for us today, so not only is who elected secondary, right? Not only is difficulty and adversity secondary to the glory of God, but my very life now. That's what we're seeing in Paul. Because I've tasted and I've seen the goodness of God and you can have everything, just give me Jesus. This is clearly Paul's position. He counts his life as nothing if people might know and enjoy the same Jesus that he knows and enjoys. Doesn't this just slap our mediocre, consumeristic Christianity in the face? You can't coexist with that idea and this other idea of, that we see in the Christian church today of, oh, church is, yeah, consumer, you know, I'll just go somewhere, I don't know, Right? It's just, it's just you can't coexist, right? And we have to be brave enough to compare the position of Paul with our approach to God, don't we? We have to sit with this, guys. And the question that comes to my mind is, have we let the consumerism and collective narcissism of our day convince us that God is, in fact, changing our pockets that we spend instead of the, the fact that we are changing his pockets that he can spend however he sees fit, Right? 32. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. That's, that's a mob for you. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? We have no clue what he's talking about there, all right? 
Theologians just scratch their head. Even the language is confusing. Is it a meteor? Is it a UFO? We don't know, okay? But it's reflective of the superstition of the, of the, of the city. 36. Seeing that these men cannot be denied, seeing that these things, these truths, he's, he's saying, guys, listen, Artemis is great. We've got the sacred stone still, you know? <laughs> seeing that you can't deny these things, um, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 37. For you have brought these men here who are, neither, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And therefore, Demetrius, you and your craftsmen, if you've got a complaint, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them charge against one another. But since they had just been kind of vindicated from that, of course, Demetrius didn't take them there. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. So this guy just talks sense to the crowd. Look, if you've got a problem, take it to the courts. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And Rome did not deal lightly with rioting, okay? 41. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, what can be said about all these things? Let's chat, right? Um, what I see in this passage is that we are dealing with things, with ideas, with methods that all have claims to some sort of power. Okay, so let me, let me explain what I mean by that. The sons of Sceva and Demetrius, they are both pushing against ideas that claim power in your life, okay? So the exorcist, the sons of Sceva, claim that through magic spells and incantations, they can liberate you from oppression and sickness. That's the claim of black magic, guys, that you can get through dark channels what you can't get through good channels, right channels, right? And they made the mistake of thinking Jesus could be used like a spell. So that was the claim that's being shaken. Does that make sense? Okay, and what about Demetrius? What, what's the claim to power that's being shaken in Demetrius? Well, Demetrius is functioning out of a claim that money can and will secure a happy life. That's the claim that's being shaken with Demetrius, isn't it? That's the claim that's being threatened. This idea that money can accomplish a sense of security and, and even spiritual prosperity, right? That's the promise that money makes. And when the threats of making money is, is, you know, comes to a head, or of losing money, I suppose, he freaks, all right? So black magic promises health, peace, security, wellness. Guess what money promises? Health, peace, security, wellness. <laughs> All of them claim a sort of efficacy in our lives. They claim to do, they promise something. So what happens when the kingdom of God comes to a city that has all of its own promises of health and wellness and security by material and even supernatural means? What happens? Or you could say it this way. What happens in your heart, our hearts, when Jesus reveals the sufficiency of his power and grace to make us whole and give us true life? What happens in your heart? Are we, am I communicating clearly? What happens when Jesus shows himself to you to be the true way of life? What happens? And we have two options, at least we can see from the text. We either take the things that once promised health and security and peace, as valuable as they might be, and we throw them at the feet of Jesus, i.e. burn our magic books. In the case of the Ephesians, burning books that were of insane value, right? That's option one. You take the thing that made the claim and you submit it to the claims and authority of Jesus. You say, I no longer have confidence in this channel. 
to, to give to me what it promises, right? That's option one, abandon it. Burn the bridge, so to speak, in our thinking of the ability of the physical world to bring and sustain true life and instead look fully to Jesus. Or we can do what Demetrius does, right? Which is cling harder to the empty, lifeless, impotent idols in our life, be it sex or wealth or popularity or a bigger house or nice possession. And when we do that, when we clutch these things to our chest, we have to, in one way or another, seek to silence or at least marginalize or dismiss the voice that may be speaking the word of God to us. We have to, if when we cling to our chest, the idols of sex or wealth or money or whatever it is, you then have to, you can keep going to church, that's fine, a lot of people go to church cling to those idols, yeah? but you just have to be dismissive of what I'm saying. You just have to figure out why what I'm saying doesn't matter to you. You know, you just got to marginalize it and you got to be dismissive and maybe silence it, right? That's going to, that's going to inevitably happen when you cling idols to your chest. And I say to you, no, Jesus is the way to life. And you have to say, no, I don't think so. I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to church. I mean, yeah, I mean, love it. Come on. But you know, I'm still going to cling my idea that if I could just have that bigger house, it's going to make me much more happy and sufficient and my life will be better. Right? But amen. Right? So you see the two paths that I'm trying to get out here? When physical things that promise security and stability are shaken, we have an option, right? Those, the black magic stuff, that was revealed to as, revealed as empty. And all these people said, you know what? I'm gonna go full in on Jesus. I'm gonna put all my chips in on Jesus. And I'm going to burn the bridge, so to speak, to this other thing, right? Right now, you are heading towards one of those two positions, whether you like it or not by your thinking, your actions, your deeds, your words, you are revealing whether in fact you believe that in Jesus and Jesus alone, you have and are sustained in true living, right? I've said this before and it bears repeating. When things are shaken, like so many of us have been over the past year, right? <laughs> when things seem to be just floating off the floor and insecurity and instability threaten your sense of well-being. You will run to the things you believe are truly necessary for life. We chatting? When you feel insecure, when the things that promise you security and stability are threatened, you will instinctually run to what you believe truly brings life and what you believe truly secures, secures you, right? And this year has been a doozy, huh? <laughs> I mean... You might have been surprised at the things you ran to to give you a sense of control and comfort over your life. Anyone? Anyone surprised at how your heart has responded to the sense of instability in our culture over the past year? Anyone want to just a mulligan? Can I just do that again? Can I just try again? Because I'm not super proud of what my heart has revealed about me in terms of what I truly believe brings life. And for many of us, well, what we truly believe is like binging Netflix, right? Or whatever. We had so many things promise life and security, right? And what a lot of people have shown is they really don't think Christ-centered, being known, fully loved, community is needed, you know? They're just like, I'm out, right? What a lot of people have really shown is that Jesus is the garnish on their plate, 
Jesus was more like a decoration. And when things got tough, they pushed him off the plate to make room for stuff that they really thought mattered, right? Whether that was politics or social causes or popularity, right? And, you know, everyone is so interested uh, in this year. Everyone is so interested in what has been revealed about our culture this year, right? Dragon? Everyone's so interested in that. What's been revealed about our culture? What has this year revealed about politics? What has this year revealed about this, right? Everyone's so interested. My question to you right now is, what has this year revealed about your heart? What has this year told you about the way and the things that you truly believe bring and sustain life? I think some of us will be surprised, right? What are the things you really put weight on for life and joy and in peace? And in many ways, when Paul came into Ephesus and preached Jesus, it was disruptive, wasn't it? Clearly it was. Throw the whole city into confusion. In fact, the powered message of God threw the whole whole city, 250,000 people, into a fuss, right? And in that instability, in that moment of chaos, some people realized the things they were looking to for comfort lacked the ability to truly provide it. And as a result, they threw away their confidence in those, those things and said, I will trust Jesus, right? Yeah. And others, in that instability, clung even tighter to the things that were by nature not God, things made by the hands of men, things that in the end will be destroyed and tested by fire, according to 1 Corinthians 3.13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Hebrews 12.26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, shaken. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shakable. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reference reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you have planted your life on the ideas that Politics can provide for you an unshakable and peaceful existence. I don't care what side of the fence you're on. I want you to hear this. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yeah. And we should find comfort in that reality. And if you are in a place of despair and just overwrought with, oh, everything's going to fall apart, can can I just let you hear this? You are a sojourner and a, and a pilgrim in this land. All right, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if you are overjoyed and just thrilled that's what, that what's happened, can I just comfort you with this? You're a sojourner and a pilgrimer in this land. And we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that same truth has things to say to everyone in this room. Let's stand and pray.